Pick up uh, with me in verse 13 of chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians is where we are studying. Um, a couple of comments by way of <clears throat> excuse me, introduction. If you haven't been here for a couple of weeks, the Thessalonian letters are some of the uh, most, uh, there are two of them, and we're going to be studying them both, are, are some of the most personal letters of Paul in the sense that he, in many places, really bears his heart and says some things to these dear people that he doesn't say to others. It's also uh, a very important letter because we see, uh, two letters actually, where we see a focus on um, end times, uh, the final things, eschatology, if you will. Every verse in, the, in all the chapters of the book ends with something about the end time. Well, anyway, uh, and you'll see it here in chapter 2. But we pick up in verse uh, 13, and if you're following in your outline, uh, this is a renewed thanksgiving for them. And he, he says some things here that are very, very important, and I want to elaborate on them for just a little bit. And I've written a couple of things on the board to illustrate this. Uh, I'm reading from the NIV, but I also have a New American translation, so I'll try to comment on both of those, because the passage here, the care of the translation is really important because of the words that are used here. So you see in verse 13, and we also thank God, and again, that takes you back because he had thanked them over in verse 2, he had thanked the Lord for some things of chapter 1. But we thank God continually, and that, that's an ongoing, continuous present. There's an ongoing, continuous spirit of thanksgiving. When you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God. Now, the two important words there are the word received and the word accepted. <clears throat> okay? Now, I want to I want you to draw your attention to this because if you'll notice carefully, accepted is then modified by the phrase, not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God. So there's something about this word that is very important. Okay. So first of all, as you know, I mean the, the theme of this is how they received the word of God. They heard it from Paul and Silas and others, and they received it. Okay, they, they received it as truth. But then he says, I'm also thanking the Lord, not only that you received the word, but that you accepted it. This is a, this is a very, very significant word in the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul uses it a number of times. So, okay, you receive something... You receive it, you accept, you take it, you hear it. But then they took it another step, not only in terms of the gospel receiving it, but the entire word of God, they accepted it. What does that mean? Some of the ways to think about this would be to embrace it, to welcome it. It's not only intellectually understanding the truth, but it's embracing and welcoming the truth. It's the difference between the 18 inches from your heart to your mind. You're accepting it. You receive it. You understand it. Intellectually, I understand the words. I understand what it means. But you also are embracing and welcoming it. Believing it and internalizing it. That's correct. And I mean, you're... Um, 
you're you're doing something that I'm trying to choose my words really carefully here because this can be so easily misunderstood. But you're doing something with the Word of God that is more than just, I understand what is being taught. You know, I understand the words, I understand the sentences, I understand the content, I can write a summary of it if I want. But it, you're doing much more with that. You are welcoming it into your life. You are embracing it as true. Woody, I, I think, used the word, you were internalizing it. Now, what he does not talk about here, but he does talk about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and it actually begins with verse 6 and goes all the way to the end of the chapter. How does this step occur where we accept, we embrace, we welcome the truth? The answer that is explained to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is this is the Holy Spirit's work. In a sense, everything is the Holy Spirit's work because of his role in our lives. But this tells us something, by it I mean the word that we translate accept, tells us something about the work of the Holy Spirit. As you put your faith in Christ, and as you know this is important teaching throughout the New Testament, but as you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within you. That You become the new temple of the living God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. All of those phrases that are throughout the New Testament. And the Lord Jesus in John chapter 16 talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit and his ministry. It's going to be an extensive ministry in our lives. And one of his ministries is to teach us and to guide us in all truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, from verse 6, where he begins to talk about the wisdom of God, through verse 16, where he ends with, we have the mind of Christ, which I want to talk about in a minute. He explains to us how the Holy Spirit does this. The Holy Spirit enables us to <clears throat> begin to not only intellectually understand truth, but to open our hearts and willingly embrace and welcome it into our hearts. Because as we embrace it and welcome it into our heart, it begins to transform us. And again, I'm summarizing lots of things throughout the New Testament. That's the word he's using here, the same word that Paul uses in that passage. <clears throat> it, it, he's saying something. He is absolutely thrilled with what he sees happening in the lives of these Thessalonian believers. He's thanking God continually. It's a continuous present an ongoing spirit of thankfulness to God, that they not only received the word, they've accepted it. And you see, you can see the discerning work that comes from the Holy Spirit, not as human words, but as the word of God. Now, let me, let me explain a couple of things to you. You can have a person who does not know Christ as their Savior. They, they have no relationship with the living God. And they can open the book of Genesis and start reading the first two chapters, and you ask them, what does that teach? Well, it teaches that God created the physical universe. Okay, what has happened in their life? They've intellectually understood the content of the first two chapters. Then you ask them, do you believe that is true? Do you believe that is an accurate, valid account of creation? And the response is, of course not. Nobody believes that today. So what have they not done 
with the truth. They haven't accepted it. They've understood the words. They understand the sentences. They understand what teaching. But they have not embraced it. They have not welcomed it. So they're saying, oh, it's just words. It's just the words of people. Somebody made this up to explain something they don't understand. But they don't believe it's truth. So are you understanding the nuance of it? That is really important. Because that's one of the roles of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. And I, I mean, I just, I get all excited when I start teaching this stuff because it is really, I have seen it hundreds and hundreds of times in people's lives. And I may see it in, in, you, in you guys' lives, as I talk to some of you. I mean, you are not only intellectually understanding what the scriptures are teaching, but you are also accepting it. You're welcoming it. You're embracing it. It is true. And it's changing your life. That's what Paul is praising and thanking the Lord continually for in the lives of these Thessalonian believers. Now, I want to make sure you're with me because to understand the difference between those two verbs is to understand a great deal about the work of God's Spirit in our lives as it relates to the Word of God. And I, I want to say one more thing, but are you with me? Is there any, you want to clarify anything? So, I just want to say, it, it seems like when you share Christ with somebody, and they come like that. I think I had a conversation with Bill Fay too. Uh, I don't know why it is, because, you know, God can do whatever he wants, but of course it means to hear about seven times. That's it, what they say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, so you don't give up on them. Just because, oh, they're not going to be interested. You just got to keep... Showing love and you know God's you know provisions and stuff, but it, I know my my grandmother was my wife's side. She was ninety four and she accepted Christ at ninety four. Mm. Amen. And uh, she said, I remember when in her living room, my wife and I we were sharing it with her. She says, she said there, she started looking back. She was she was real sharp minded. She said, I can remember in my thirties when somebody shared with me, and in my forties. In my 50s, and she, she was a perfect example of the seven, I thought. But she was just kind of thinking, she says, I, I mean, somebody else shared this with me too, you know? So she was, mm. she lived in 99, but she, from 94 to 99, she was a sweet Christian. Mm. Yeah. I, I have a question about when it says the word, is it talking about the, the scriptures in Toto? Is it talking about the gospel? Is it talking about Christ? Or is it kind of all of that? What are we... From what I... It would be all of those, really, in, 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 a, in a sense. Um, because it, it does involve, first, hearing the gospel. You know what I mean? And responding to the gospel and welcoming and so on. But thinking now more broadly then about the entire teaching and guiding ministry of the Holy Spirit, it is all of the Word of God that is really, and Paul uses it in all the different categories that you just mentioned as he uses the word accept. In Greek, it's dekamai, that's the Greek word. And it's, it's just a profoundly important word. So ultimately, it's all of those things, even understanding that Jesus is the living word of God. But we know that through the revelation of the written word of God, which teaches us that. But it is, um, you know, you, Tom, you mentioned uh, your, your, your grandmother uh, on your, your wife's side. Did I tell you last? Did I tell you the story of Chuck? Did I tell you his this guy that just trusted Christ? No, I must not have told you that. So let me let me illustrate because it it fits with this too. 
Um, I've known this, Chuck is with the Lord now, but I've known his wife uh, Harriet and Chuck for about ten years. Um, she's in a Bible class. She's been in a Bible class. Actually, it's longer than that. It's probably twelve years. But anyway, she's very faithful, and um, I got to know her. And then she introduced me to her husband, and they went to Israel with me, one of the trips about seven or eight years ago. And during the trip to Israel, I learned that he doesn't know Christ. He does not know Jesus. And I also learned he doesn't want to know Jesus. I mean, every, you know, we, we, you, eat, you eat breakfast and lunch in the hotels in Israel, and then lunch is always on the run because we're doing the tour. And so I always would eat with different families and so on during the, the 10 days we're there. And oh, three or four times I think I ate uh, with, with them, and I would talk to Chuck. He said, no, I don't need this. I'm not, I'm not going to trust Jesus. It wasn't that he didn't understand what needed to be. It wasn't he didn't understand the gospel. He could tell you the gospel. His wife lived it. And he just, it was, it was fun. He got sick. He had a, a type of arthritis. I've never seen anything like this. A type of arthritis where the bones in his hands become like mush. You shake his hand, it's like holding onto a sponge. I've never seen anything like that. And he got, he couldn't do anything. Basically an invalid. And then he got very sick with heart condition. In the last, oh, about the last year of his life here, he was in hospice care. And he's still adamant. I am not trusting Christ. I mean, it wasn't, I don't understand. It wasn't, well, give me a little It was just defiance. I'm not trusting Jesus. And so three weeks ago, Harriet came to me. She's in one of my classes on uh, Wednesday afternoon. She came to me and she said, Dr. Eckman, what am I going to do? Chuck is, is dying. They're giving him a week or two. What am I going to do if he doesn't trust Jesus? And I just said to Harriet, you cannot take that burden on your shoulders. I mean, I know why you're, but just leave it to the Lord. Trust him with it. Until he takes his last breath, he still has an opportunity to respond. This Saturday, it'll be three weeks ago, in the hospice uh, care, and Harriet was with him. He rolls his wheelchair up to her with tears streaming down his face. I just put my faith in Jesus. He gave up. He finally gave up. And I'm not kidding you, that's exactly the way to say it. He finally welcomed and embraced the truth that he knew for decades. And then Harriet starts crying, and she emailed me almost immediately. And, and I saw her um, last week, and I, I couldn't go to the funeral, so I wrote a little thing for the pastor to read. But Chuck is a trophy of God's grace. I hope you understand what I mean by that metaphor. Now, he pushed back all his whole life, but finally he gave in. And, and the amazing aspect of the difference between hearing and understanding what the truth is and accepting the truth. People hear and understand the truth, but they don't accept it. Do you understand the difference? And what the scriptures teach us is the difference is the Holy Spirit's work. Salvation is not our work. It's, it's the work of God's Spirit, and it, it is that supernatural work. And so, and it just, it was those last that he died. By the way, that was Saturday, 4 a.m., Saturday, Sunday morning, he died. So, I mean, that was literally, like Peggy said when I told her, she's, that's a thief on the cross kind of conversion, and it is. But there was that, I, he was a lovely, he always called me professor. <laughs> if we're, you know, since I went to Israel. So he, whatever you would see me, he'd come to the class. He'd take notes, but it was just, how can this guy not? I wanted to take him, put him against the wall, and just kind of punch him out. You know? <laughs> Why are you not taking this step? It doesn't make sense. You know? 
but uh, it was just, it was one of those amazing aspects. She had prayed for him something, I think it was something like 37 years or something. And finally, and that's the only way to put it, finally he gave in in the last hours of his life. But there's the certainty. He that believes has eternal life, John six forty seven. That was a great comfort for Harriet. And I saw her last uh, Wednesday, it's just beaming, you know, that she knows that her husband is in heaven. Um, you know, and don't you think, <clears throat> you know, we sit around this table and we learn, and yet five years from now we're going to learn something that reading over the same verses that we never saw the first time. Mm-hmm. And that understanding, I think we, don't you think we have to, I mean, be patient with ourselves in terms of, uh, we don't understand all the things we sit here today, but part of the reason for your being with us is so you can break this out for us and open a greater understanding that we have that we might live more fully in, mm-hmm. in his will as we mm-hmm. see it through his word, right? I That's mean, right. Is that... But it is the Holy Spirit, Fred, who's taking the word that I may teach and explain, but he takes it, and he's the one that does that work. But it is, um, it's, again, that passage in 1 Corinthians 2, it's, it's just a very profoundly important passage of what the Spirit of God does in our lives. And it, it is, it's an ongoing process. You know, uh, it really is. We are all a work in progress, all of us. Amen. All of us. Now, I want to say one more thing before we leave this. At the end of that chapter, that meaning chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, after he's gone through this wonderful discussion, he says, <clears throat> Who has given counsel to the Lord on how to run his world? What's the answer to that? No one. No one. Then he concludes, But we have the mind of Christ. What does he mean by that? The end of chapter 2, verse 16 of 1 Corinthians. Because of the work of God's Spirit, enabling us to welcome and embrace the truth, we have the mind of Christ. Does it mean we're omniscient? You know what omniscient means. You know everything completely and wholly. I know that's not true. So what does he mean by that? We begin to see and understand things the way God sees and understands things. We are gaining God's perspective on things. And so as the Holy Spirit teaches and guides us, and just up there is summarized, the end result of that is we are beginning we are beginning to understand and see things, grasp things, um, embrace things the way God sees them. What would that involve, for example? Now, this is what's called class participation. <laughs> but what would that involve? Seeing things the way God sees them, having his perspective on things. Mm. He, he, he will mm. look at it. You know, this is a time thing too. Mm. Sort of too, which we can't obviously because we can't look at the time. But 
Dave, that's really insightful. That's, that's a good comment. Can I take it and just put it into a phrase? We are gaining the eternal perspective about things. Because that's God's perspective. We gain the internal perspective about things. And I, I think that's just great. That, I couldn't have said that any better um, than, than you said it. it. I think that's part of what Paul is really talking about there in 1 Corinthians 2. He speaks earlier in that chapter that the Spirit searches the deep things of God. And we have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we can know and understand the deep things of God. That's what he's saying there. So the result is we begin to gain God's perspective on things, which means we begin to see things from an eternal perspective. Time, people, material things, the world. I mean, it's everything we start to see it from the vantage point of God, which is a very different vantage point. And it's, I mean, it's a hard vantage point for us because we're temporal, we're finite, um, we, we're tied to everything that's material, and none of that is evil. That's not saying that any of that's evil, but that's the, our perspective. The Bible that the Holy Spirit uses to teach us gives us, you know, we often speak of that 100,000-foot perspective, but it's a, an eternal perspective. That's just, that's, that's an amazing, almost confounding truth about what God's doing. Go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In a way, that's right. In a way, that's right. I think so. I mean, I, there are still obviously things that I don't know if we can ever completely understand why this is happening, why is this occurring at this point, and so on. But with that eternal perspective uh, on things, it does give you the capacity, based on your faith, <clears throat> to embrace certain things. I have an insight of understanding. I think, you know, it's really, and I don't want to go down a bunny trail too far here because this is a major topic in and of itself, but suffering is one of those things. When suffering is a conundrum for the human race, you know what I mean by conundrum, it's a perplexing difficulty. You can't resolve it easily. But from the perspective of God, there are two things we know. Suffering is a result of sin. That's part of living in a, a sinful world. But that God enables us to understand the result of a sin curse world with results of suffering, but also the role suffering can play in our lives. Plus, that God's conquering suffering and evil by becoming a victim of suffering and evil, which is what the cross is. And so as we, we, we can read in Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4, that Jesus, who did suffer and did experience evil, he wasn't the author, but experienced it. I mean, the people that crucified him did the most dastardly evil of act, act on the planet. They crucified an innocent person. But he knows what it's like. He can identify with us. He comes alongside us. That's that gives us an insight into suffering that we wouldn't have if we didn't know the truth. It may not always ask, answer the question, why is this occurring? We may or may not get that answer. But sometimes knowing that Jesus suffered and knows what it's like to suffer and comes alongside gets us through it. My brother-in-law is going through that, right? He's dying of this rare, rare can, uh, kidney disease, and it's 
I mean, it is just absolutely awful to just watch him from the outside. And, you know, I talk to him every other week. Peggy talks to his uh, wife, my her sister, every every week. I mean, it's just agonizing. But we keep talking and keep praying, you know, that Lord, in a sense, eternity is going to make sense of this. Uh, I've encouraged him to just think think of the witness that you are living before your sons and your grandkids. What they're seeing as grandpa goes through this. What they're seeing about his faith. What they're seeing about his capacity to trust God, even though he can't explain everything that's happening. It's a great witness. But ultimately, it doesn't resolve it all. You know, but uh, anyway. But I, this, we've been on this verse a long time today. It's goodness, halfway through the class already. But it's, it's really important to you, for you to understand what the Apostle Paul is saying in this verse and the application of that to our lives. And when you really, and this is the takeaway that I want you to have with us, that as you, as you read God's Word, as you are in a class like this, as you're hearing your pastor preach, as you're reading scriptures on your own, remember, it is the Holy Spirit who is at work in my life, helping me to embrace and welcome this truth in my life. You follow me? I mean, that's the ongoing work of God's Spirit in our lives. That is tremendously comforting. And you can look back over, you know, say, five years of your life and say, my goodness, I really am understanding a lot more about God. What is he like? Why can I trust him more? And, and so on. It's, just a, it's a wonderful provision of God's grace. It really is. I want to say that Paul was quite the man, wasn't he? The Lord picked him out to write all these verses. You kind of get that impression, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he was there yeah. John as far as writing most of the Gospels and the yeah. epistles, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and the, the absolute, he's another, he, the only thing that explains Paul is God's grace, because as you know, he was persecuting the church and killing Christians, and then the Lord meets him and he uh, becomes the greatest apostle to the Gentiles there was. He was suffering too, though. He was. Because whatever, and we don't know what that is, but he said, you know, we asked the God to take it away, whatever it was, but he didn't. You know, he was yeah. Remember his words. Yeah. My grace is it's sufficient for you, you, Paul. I will enable you to take. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, let's move on here then um, with verse 14. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. Now that's, again, think of that statement. They're imitating the churches in Judea. Okay, what's he talking about there? The Jerusalem church, the early church. This is an early letter of Paul. You suffered from your fellow citizens the same thing those churches suffered from the Jews. We know this from the earlier part of the chapter. We're going to learn more about it. The Thessalonian believers are suffering for Christ. They're being persecuted. And Paul is saying, it's really, you are imitating and following and mimicking what was happening in Jerusalem, where the early Jewish church is being persecuted by the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. There's a parallel. There's an analogy he's drawing. And then in verse 15, he just reminds, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. 
Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, killed Jesus, killed the prophets, drove Paul out. They displeased God, are hostile, everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, this is really an astounding statement. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Whoa. That's kind of harsh, isn't it? Now, how you work that out and in, interpret it, there's a little bit of, of, uh, of controversy there. But what is he basically saying to the Thessalonians? God is going to take care of these people. These people who have rejected the gospel, these people who are hostile to the gospel, these people who are persecuting those who represent the gospel, the same spirit that persecuted and eventually crucified Jesus. But God, God's going to take care of them. The wrath of God and the verb tense there is what is, is, is really kind of interesting. The wrath of God has come upon them. To, NASB says to the utmost. NIV says to them at last. What's the point? I'm not sure if Paul has in mind something very specific here or whether he's talking about the end time wrath or he's talking about Rome destroying Jerusalem in A.D. 70. All I think we are to draw away from that is those who persecute and those who resist and those who are defiant, God will take care of them. Well, God says vengeance is mine, mm-hmm. not yours. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty hard to reach out to someone if you're vengeful and you want to give them payback by preaching or accusing them or something and, and not loving them because they will respond I think all these people responded to love and not, not vengeance that's not our business I think that's right that was one of the the application that we're going to draw from this. So you, you've already done it so eloquently. No, yeah, yeah, it's great. It's that it's not our business to take out personal vengeance like this. God's going to handle them. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ did not spread throughout the ancient world by armies. Now, that's not an anti-military. I'm not anti-army. That's not what I'm saying. It wasn't spread by military force. It was spread by people like Paul and all the other apostles and so on, going into areas, preaching the gospel, planting churches, and then moving on. That's how it penetrated the entire Mediterranean world. And what he's saying here is, in effect, the persecution that you're experiencing in Thessalonica is comparable to the persecution the early Christian Jewish people experienced in Jerusalem by the same people that crucified Jesus. As God took care of them, God's going to take care of these guys. So it's, and Fred quoted the correct verse, vengeance is mine. God's going to take care of that. And he's a very strong word, the wrath of God. Now, it's, I, I don't want to make too much of this because I, I want to get into this next passage, which is really kind of a really neat applicational passage. But He's just reviewing some aspects of their life as this early church in Thessalonica. 
and drawing the comparable parallel that he wants them to see. And in effect, we know this. The early church in the first century was ruthlessly and relentlessly persecuted. But God takes care of that. I want you to notice something in the next paragraph that begins with uh, um, verse 17. But brothers and sisters or brethren, when you were orphaned by being, when we were orphaned by being separated from you, New American Standard says, having been bereft of you for a short while. Who speaks like that? Bereft of you from a short while. <laughs> In other words, we were separated from you. Remember, I told you, you have to go back to the very first day when we started this. Paul is down in Corinth. He's way south, down in Corinth. Macedonia, the Thessalonians, that's up here. So he's down south, they're up north. And he says, we've been separated by you, for you for a short time. In person, not in thought, you've been in my minds and my prayers. Out of an intense longing, we've made every effort to see you. Ah, Paul's desire is to revisit the Thessalonian church. As a matter of fact, the language here is sort of an intense emotional language. He can't wait to see them again. But look at verse 18. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. I really want to come. But what's the next phrase? But Satan thwarted us. Satan blocked our way. What is that? I was just going to say, well... Satan blocked away, but God allowed that to happen. He blocked his way for whatever reason. So everything's again orchestrated by God. So you know, he blocked his way, but that's way he maybe wasn't supposed to go back when he was when at the time he was going to go back. Paul is saying he's he's lifting a window. It's very just a little bit. And we can peer into that window and close it. Because he doesn't explain it. He doesn't tell us what this means. He doesn't tell us the specifics. He doesn't tell us how it occurred. He just said, Satan is preventing me from going north. Now, I want you to think with me about two passages of Scripture here. Somewhere I have this written down. I can't remember the exact verses there in Daniel 10. These two passages, Daniel 10, uh, really virtually the whole chapter, and then his teaching here is is Paul's teaching in Ephesians 4. Now, if you know what this passage is, Ephesians 6, you know you just don't know you know, or you forget. I know you know this. This is the armor of God passage. Put on the whole armor of God passage. But I'll get to that in a minute. But what time is it? I think we've got enough time to do it. This is an intriguing passage here. This is near the end of the book of Daniel. You know Daniel 
you know, you know, you know, who, you know who I mean, don't you, Daniel? Okay. He was one of the exiles that uh, was taken by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. He's an old man here. He's in his 80s, the Persian Empire. He's serving them now. And he says, he starts off, I've been praying. He's praying to the Lord. And here's his prayer. Three weeks later, the prayer is answered. And during this time, from Daniel praying, Daniel's fasting, he is, he is praying, and so on. But it's three weeks to the answer. And the answer comes by means of an angel. And the angel said, as soon as you started praying, God sent me. But I was delayed because I was battling the prince of Persia. Now, what does that mean? Cyrus and he, or Cyrus is the king of Persia, he and Cyrus are duking it out? No. The same thing, just for a moment, the window is, is lifted and we peer into the cosmic struggle that is going on in the spiritual world between the angels that serve God and the demonic hosts that serve Satan. And he was delayed because the prince who governs Persia in the satanic kingdom of evil was so powerful, the angel says, I had to call on Michael to help me, who is the only angel in the Bible called an archangel. He's called that in Jude. Michael's mentioned a number of times throughout the scriptures. But this battle was so intense, he had to get the archangel to help defeat him. Then Michael neutralized him, and I could come and answer your prayer. That's in the, that's in the, and then at the end of this, in verse 1, and now I'm going to also go fight the prince of Greece, too. And so we just, oh my goodness. So there's this cosmic nature of the battle between God and Satan that's going on, and we don't even see it. But we're warned of this as it's personalized in Ephesians 6. Because in Ephesians 6, Paul said, every day I want you to dress with the armor of God. That's figurative language. I mean, you know, when you read it, you understand that. But you put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, all that stuff. Why? Because we fight, not against flesh and blood, but against powers and rulers and authorities in the heavenly spheres. Again, the window's lifted real quickly. That's shut. In other words, your enemy, Satan, and his minions are out to try to thwart and defeat you. And if you do not dress properly <laughs> with righteousness, with truth, I mean, all, that's, we'll just understand that metaphorically. Every day we just put, we dress for battle, so to speak. In other words, we're just certain who we are. We're certain of our standing in Christ. And so he says, then you stand fast. Immovable. Because you serve the living God. And as John says in his epistle, he that is in you is greater than he's in the world. Not that you're afraid and every night before you go to bed, you look under your bed to make sure there aren't demons there. That's not what he's talking about. It's a very positive, defensive, and offensive approach. And he says, you take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. When Peggy got sick, um, she's been sick for about 10 years. It's a heart condition and autoimmune disease. But anyway, those first, day, those first months were really hard. She was really sick. She was down to 89 pounds. 
And uh, I would call her, I could do that anyway, normally, but I, I'd call her and just, you know, t two or three times, say, how you doing? And she's, I remember one day, it was really, it was just an insightful comment from my dear wife. She said, well, I'm not doing real well, honey. I didn't put my armor on. And when she, because she would start the day during those early months when we were trying to figure out everything that was going on in her body, but she would she would just say every morning she would read through the, the whole armor of God passage. She would just read. She would just say, "Lord, this is who I am. I'm righteous in Your eyes. The helmet of salvation is mine. I have the sword of the Spirit." And she would just pray through that. And that morning she didn't. That's <laughs> how she responded. I didn't pray through the armor this morning, honey. I'm not having a good day. You know, it's just it's just an incredibly insightful, wise comment from my dear wife. But that's what he's saying. And whatever Paul means by this comment in uh, verse, uh, what is that, verse 18, he's saying this is part of the spiritual warfare that we're involved in. He and that's a frustrating thing is he doesn't explain it. We don't know the details. But that can be true, you know, and I've often, maybe you guys weren't like this, but when our kids were young and so on, the hardest day of the week was Sunday. I mean, it was, always, it was so hard, because that's different routine and everything, but, you know, generally speaking, the children weren't excited about getting <laughs> dressed and getting ready and all the things that were a part of, of the Sunday morning routine, going to church and everything, you know, and Always somebody would do something which would create kind of chaos in the house and you had to deal with that. And then you, you finally enter church, not in a really great spirit. You know, okay, Lord, I just can't wait to get in and worship you. You kind of feel like the kids do. Boy, I don't know why we're doing this. It's been so much easier to just stay at home and listen to the radio. There's just something about that. Jim, when people are sharing... Uh, you know, like, we want to share the gospel, we're afraid to share the gospel. Isn't that part of this battle uh, that goes on, in the, so. in the, like, seven times talking? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not just a walk. It's a battle to get there. Mm -hmm. And your friend, I mean, mm -hmm. he battled this, and then finally... He finally gave it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it is. I mean, it is a battle for the heart, soul, and mind of the image bearers of God. Satan does not want the image bearers of God to come into a relationship with him. God does. And it is, it is really a battle for the heart, soul, and mind of people. And it is. But, you know, at John's admonition, I forget that, I think it's chapter 4, but John's admonition in his first epistle is, he that is in you is greater than he is in the world. Because this, this reality of spiritual warfare is not to lead us to paranoia. And to an imbalanced approach to life. We're, we're on the winning side. We have the victory. Satan is defeated. He's done. The cross sealed, the cross and resurrection sealed his faith. And uh, I remember one time I was asked a question. Well, if the cross and the resurrection sealed Satan's faith, why didn't he give up? That's a really good question. A student asked me that. That's a really good question. Because, I mean, he knows he's defeated. It's clear he's defeated. He's not going to win. Until Christ died, you know, there was that theoretical possibility that he wasn't going to win, or that he would win. But, you know, and I, I don't know if I can give an answer to that, but at least I think I can suggest it really gives us an insight that he keeps battling of how evil he really is. 
because he's he's defeated. He can't he can't win. He can't defeat God. But he can take as many image bearers of God to hell with him. And I think that's his strategy. I really do. That's singularly his strategy. He can't he can't win, but he can hurt God in the sense that um, image bearers of God that God created to have a relationship with Him, but it has to be you know through Christ. And if they don't accept that gift, um, that's their destiny. But uh, you know, it's all here. Would yeah, yeah. Am I on the same page? What I'm when he talks about uh, Paul more than once, yet Satan hindered this. Yeah. And he's still in jail. He's in prison, right? No, so no, not here. He, he, this is not one of his prison epistles. Okay. He's in Corinth. He's ministering down in Corinth. Okay. So Somehow he is. Satan is. That's it, Woody. We don't know. He doesn't. He just tells us it's one of those many, many frustrating points of Scripture. Why didn't you explain this? <laughs> but it's just. It's, it's something every now and then, and they're just two examples, but every now and then you see this reference. We're in a spiritual war, and that's what he's saying. Uh, why, you know, ultimately, and I think that was, was Tom's point, ultimately even the things that Satan does, God can use for the greater glory of himself, and, and I'm sure that's what would happen here. But he's just, it's... It's a remarkable reminder for us, and I take you back to that Ephesians 6 passage. He said it's a very clear statement, for we war not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and powers in the heavenly places. That's our enemy. And it's just good to be reminded. That's why it's so important to have the defensive and offensive weapons that are available to us which is our standing in Christ, we're righteous, the salvation, belt of truth, sword of the Spirit, shield of faith, you know, all those things. That are, they're metaphors, but they're important statements of this is who you are in Christ. Now use those. We are not, um, what's the right way to say that, we're not complacent warriors. We are engaged. And we are taking the resources that God gives us to stand fast against the evil one. Yeah, because he'll try to ruin us too, ruin mm-hmm. our testimony. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you see that in our world, Christian mm-hmm. world, you know. So. Well, I, I know I've referred this book uh, before, but C.S. Lewis uh, wrote the Screw Tape Letters, which, if you've never read that, I'd just encourage it. It's an allegory, but it's really powerful. My son, um, uh, has read that several times. He just loves the book because it gives him insight into a lot of the things he works with. But anyway, the point I make is it's what, what Lewis does there is he really does some creative things about what the, what the head demon is training the younger demons. Watch and be a student of the people you're assigned to. Find out their vulnerabilities. Make sure you understand what makes them tick and then go for their weak spot. Or some strategies like very affluent rich people. They're living as if God exists. Don't let them know God exists. Hide it from them. You know, they're doing okay. They don't need you know all those really, really clever strategies. Because the the, the evil one is subtle, he's devious. He's a, he's a being of guile, and he will do anything he can to ruin 
the testimony of a believer. Um, and, you know, he's picked quite a few of them off. <laughs> yeah. I'm still back in Daniel 10, 12 yeah. to 11, yeah. because I have never heard this before. Really? No, I have not. Um, well, there's a lot of things I have Well, heard. yeah. <laughs> but encapsulating, or better yet, just damning Satan to hell, yeah. locking the door, we can't comprehend what that is going to be like. No. To be oh, my goodness. But God's marvelous plan, there's going to be a thousand years. Yeah. Millennium, yeah, he's locked up. That's right. He lets him go just to give people one more chance, you know, and yeah. people will fall away. Yeah. And then we have eternity future. Yeah. Be Cast in the lake of fire. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Can you, I, I mean, that's, that's a great, that's a great comment. Can you imagine what the new heaven and new earth is going to be like? There's no evil, no Satan, no temptation, no evil thoughts. I mean, I, that is. It's, it's, it's an unimaginable. You and I have absolutely no category for thinking about that. But that's the promise. New world. Yeah, that's a new promise. It's great. I mean, and it's, uh, as we've, we've seen this in Paul's writings, and we, I know we talked about it before, one of the major principles of the scriptures that, to motivate us is a future promise is to govern present behavior. That's your future. And God's giving you the resources now to have victory over the evil one, but also to hold on to the promise there's coming a day when he's gone. Evil's gone. I can't, I can't, ima- I can't imagine, and I can't, I can't even think about that, what that is going to be like with absolutely no evil, no Satan, no world, no struggles with thought life, no struggles with emotions, struggles with attitudes. That's Plus having Reese's peanut butter cups to snack on. <laughs> and it won't put on weight, uh, which I'm, that's an inference I'm drawing. That might be a wrong inference. But. Can I say I'm growing? And what I mean by that, I used to watch cops. I love the program. Idiot, drug, drug uh, guys, and, 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 and drinkers, and drunks. Good, that's how you get. You know, you should know the law. But now I'm even more of a Christian. <clears throat> you know, but somebody should have led you to Christ. Yeah. You got to feel sorry for him for drinking or drug yeah. or driving. Yeah. You know, is that uh, uh, profitable? Well, absolutely. Well, you're having. You're... Instead of hating that at first mm-hmm. and say, well, that's what you get. You know, it's your fault. You should know what was going to happen. But now it's, you know, he needs help more to help him. Yeah, having compassion on yeah. people that, you know, because yeah. they are enslaved to that, you know, and only the Lord can really Amen. get them. Amen. Yes, now, before we finish today, we got another minute or two. Just look with me at verse 19, and then we'll, we'll draw this conclusion. Okay, he, he's not able to get up there, and he will not see them again till the third missionary journey. But he says, for what is our hope, our joy, or our crown? in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. For we wanted to come to you. For who is our hope, our joy, our crown, exultation? You are. In other words, Paul is saying to them, you, you are our hope, you are our joy, you are our crown in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Is it not you? You are our glory and our joy. What does he mean by that? 
Those three words, our hope, our joy, our crown. The Greek, the, the Greek word there for crown is Stephanos. It's not the diadem, the crown of royalty. It's the crown that was won in the athletic contest. So well, we're all Christians, we all get crowned, will we not? Well, uh, let's, let's stay away. Yeah, okay. Let's stay away from that, though. You're right, in one sense, the crown of eternal life. But for now, let's stay away from that. What does he mean when he personalizes this and says, you are our hope, you are our joy, you are our crown? Is it not you, he says, rhetorically? So what does he mean by that? You know, I've been to... Um several memorial services where somebody has been eulogized and you hear about their professional success mm. and all of these things. And I've watched all of that and I thought, when it comes to the end of my life mm. and somebody says something about me, I don't want them to say anything about where I worked or what I did or what I accomplished, but did I make a change or an impact in somebody's life mm. for eternity? And I think that's what he means mm. here. Everything Absolutely. else that he has done, he just counts as not important, yep. but it's the, the impact he had on somebody's life. Mm. And for this letter, it's you Thessalonians. Right. You're what it's all about. Right. You're the crown. You're the joy. You're, you're the hope. Everything is focused on the eternal dimension, as Dave said earlier, the eternal dimension things. You people will live forever. You're going to need to live in, in joyous uh, reunion with the Lord Jesus for all eternity, or you're not. You'll live in hell. But you are my joy. You're my crown. You're, you're what it's all about. And Jim just he just nailed it. I couldn't have said it any better. That's somebody when an old Baptist preacher. I heard him say when I was still in Pennsylvania, an old Baptist preacher said, "There, I wish I could give you his accent, but I can't. He, there are only two things that are eternal: people." And God's word. Both you'll take to heaven. He had a comment, but I don't know what to do. John? Yeah. No, I think I agree with that. It occurred to me that Paul was saying at, at, at this point, um, what I've tried to do has been most successful with you, the Thessalonians, and, and that if I'm going to receive a crown, you know, you could look at it that way. That, that, I think that's... But I don't know that Paul, I mean, he speaks in other areas about when we receive a crown. He does. Mm -hmm. you know, he speaks the most of it. As I think about it, I think maybe Jim is more accurate. Thinking in terms of the, your Jim, right? Okay. <laughs> the, Thessalon the Thessalonians uh, uh, being at that point, uh, meeting all of the expectations mm -hmm. that he had hoped for. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, I think so. He they really they were very unique for him, as we've commented earlier, and we've seen earlier. They're very special to him. But as uh, in in a way, he is saying this is really what it is all about for me. You, the people that I'm impacting, he's saying. Uh, that same Baptist preacher's wife said to my wife. You know, and you have to understand this, dear lady, but why she would say it. She says, you know, there's only, there's only one thing we can take to heaven, our children. You know, and that, boy, that stuck yes. with Peggy. You know, she, and that is, in a sense, now in a way, you know, it's more than that. But the point she was making is how significant it is what happens in the lives of our kids. Yeah. 
Because you will take them to heaven. But if if they reject Jesus, you won't. But that's you can take it's your role as a parent to do everything you can to provide the opportunity for them to respond to the gift of salvation. But that really that stuck with Peggy. She always oh, she still talks a bit about that. And she's talking about it a lot more because we now have a grandson. <laughs> and What's his name again? George. George James Peter is his name. Very English sounding name, but he's just he's a cute little guy. I have 7,000 pictures of him. <laughs> but, I mean, it's just that how, and I'll close with this. The, the focus of Paul really is on people and the eternal significance of people, isn't it? I mean, that's really what this is. It's truth, it's doctrine, and that's, he is a, a superb theologian. But how all of this impacts people. So, um as we lead today, I, I want to make the main takeaway for today is what we studied there in verse 13 about receiving and accepting the truth, the difference between those two, and that uh, God's word is a part of the armor that we put on each day. Uh, let's pray here. Father, we're grateful for this uh, little section in First Thessalonians. Thank you that through the Holy Spirit, you give us the enablement to not only receive and hear and understand, but to also accept, to welcome, to embrace the truth so that it take, we take it in, internalize it, and it continues its ongoing work of transformation in our lives. We also thank you that the reality that we are in a spiritual battle in a very real sense, we battle not against uh, flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers and authorities in the heavenly places. The reality of that is you are greater than the one that's in the world. You give us the resources to stand fast. Help us to take advantage of those resources. The breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, the shield of faith. They all represent who we are in Christ and the resources we have. I pray for these men. Many of them are on the front lines. They're dealing with the many aspects of this world that are contrary to what the truth of the gospel really stands for. Help them to be vigilant. Help them to be men that are compassionate, men that are firm, men who represent you well, the Enochs of this world who walk with you, and also who represent you well. I pray this for every one of us, including myself around this table. Help us to truly represent you well. In Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Amen. Have a great rest of the day.